Folks, have you checked out the Irish History Podcast shop recently? Right now, I have a sale of 30% off everything when you use the code SALE30. So go to irishhistorypodcast.ie forward slash shop and get 30% off everything when you use the discount code SALE30. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hello and welcome to the Irish History Podcast. My name is Finn Dwyer and this is part two of my series Fatal Feuds. This series is a gripping story about life in late medieval Ireland where powerful families went to war to dominate the island. It was a cutthroat world where one wrong move could lead to your family being destroyed. Now if you haven't listened to part one I would strongly recommend catching up before you check out this episode. Without further ado, I'm going to pick up the story now where we left off last time, at Christmas 1294. Ireland stands on a knife edge after the Lord of Offaly kidnapped the island's most powerful man, the Red Earl of Ulster, Richard de Burgh. Christmas 1294 was a tense time across Ireland. Chronic food shortages and terrible weather were threatening the poor with starvation. Indeed, a chronicler at the Priory of the Holy Trinity in Dublin reported the poor of the city eating the bodies of executed criminals. While food shortages threatened the poor with starvation, the great nobles of the land showed indifference. They were far more concerned with a deadly game of high-stakes politics that threatened their power, prestige and wealth. This had begun on December the 9th, 1294, when John Fitzthomas, the Lord of Offaly, had plunged Ireland into uncertainty and chaos when he kidnapped the most powerful man in the land, the Red Earl of Ulster, Richard de Burgh, along with his cousin, William Leah de Burgh. Fitzthomas certainly had his reasons for carrying out this action. The rise of the Red Earl in the previous ten years had limited his options for advancement in Connacht. The Red Earl had supported A. O'Connor as king of the O'Connor family in the West and even urged him on to destroy Fitzthomas's seat of power at Sligo Castle. However, by kidnapping de Burgh, Fitzthomas had upped the stakes massively. While it certainly evened the playing field between the Fitzthomases and the de Burghs, it was undoubtedly a risky strategy. The king, Edward I, would undoubtedly be furious. Furthermore, the other lords and nobles across Ireland 
would not be happy. While Manny may have been wary about the rising power of the de Burgs, taking the Red Earl hostage was unquestionably dangerous. Gaelic Irish revolts had been on the increase in recent decades and plunging the Norman colony into a crisis like this certainly wasn't going to help. However, John Fitzthomas did have a plan. There was method to his madness. While he held the two leading members of the de Burgh family in Lee Castle, he went to war in Connacht to depose A. O'Connor, that Gaelic king who the Red Earl had supported. In his place, he presumably wanted to install a more pliable member of the O'Connor family who would do his bidding. While imprisoned, the two leading de Burghs, the Red Earl and William Leah, were unable to counter his moves and John Fitzthomas certainly unleashed mayhem. It is rare in history that you can sense the collective feeling of anxiety from medieval documents, but what survives from the year 1295 certainly portrays a society on a knife edge. The population held their breath in anticipation of what was about to befall them. When mentioning the Red Earl's kidnapping and the aftermath, the Annals of Ulster said, Disturbance of all Ireland came from the capture. The Annals of Connacht claimed, This led to confusion throughout Ireland. In wider society, the violence and chaos that broke out in the aftermath of the Red Earl's capture was given the euphemistic title of the Time of Disturbance. With the Red Earl imprisoned, John Fitzthomas, as I've said, headed west with a Norman army at his back to depose A. O'Connor. In this venture, he was supported by Peter de Birmingham, the Lord of Tethmoy, a man who ten years later would become one of the most notorious Normans of the age for an atrocity he would perpetrate. But in 1295, he and Fitzthomas had one goal. As I've said, this was to depose A. O'Connor, the key Gaelic ally of the de Burghs in the West. This was certainly a gamble. He knew he would not be able to hold Richard de Burgh and William Leah de Burgh captive forever and he needed to strike while the family were in disarray and leaderless. The Annals of Loch Key tell us that when Fitzthomas invaded Connacht, the entire country was destroyed. However, try as he may, he could not depose A. O'Connor. It's highly likely that O'Connor was not standing alone against Fitzthomas and he found support from Theobald de Burgh the brother of the Red Earl and the most senior member of the de Burgh family still at large. While people in the west of Ireland endured horrors, few across the island escaped. At Enniscorthy in Wexford, the lands of a certain Richard of Enniscorthy were raided for supplies of food. This wasn't done by rebels, but instead by the bailiff of his own lord, William de Valance, who was provisioning the nearby castle of Ferns in case of siege. Upheaval was sweeping the country. However, it was the people of Kildare who arguably suffered the most in this period, known as the time of disturbance. When he failed in his immediate objectives in the west of Ireland and A. O'Connor evaded capture, John Fitzthomas took advantage of the chaos that swept through Ireland to expand his power elsewhere. During the time of disturbance, he unleashed his Gaelic Irish allies from the Midlands into the lands of another rival, the former justiciar, William de Vesey. De Vesey had been recalled and was at court in England and couldn't defend his lands. Fitzthomas's Gaelic-Irish allies fought with the ferocity of a people dispossessed and wrought terrible vengeance on de Vesey's lands and the Norman settlers who lived there. 
The most audacious of their attacks saw the town of Kildare raided for a thousand pounds of goods. The personal cost was also terrible. The fate of one Kildare man, Thomas Shortond, symbolised the horrors of that time of disturbance when he was killed and mutilated by Fitzthomas's Gaelic Irish allies, the O'Dempsey's. He was only found when his neighbours saw crows circling in a field and they eventually found his corpse, or rather what remained of it, his head and foot. While attacks like this did weaken his rival, William de Vesey, there was no denying that John Fitzthomas had failed in his overall plan to curb the power of the de Burghs when he kidnapped the Red Earl. While he did have Richard de Burgh captive, he hadn't been able to depose A. O'Connor. Fitzthomas himself can only have known that he would have to release the Red Earl and by March 1295, after several weeks, immense pressure was being brought to bear on him. When a parliament of Irish nobles met in Kilkenny, they instructed Fitzthomas to release his prisoners, while similar instructions came from the royal court in England. He had no choice, but before he did release the Red Earl, he forced him to sign an agreement that released Fitzthomas from any allegiance to the de Burgh family. That the de Burghs would honour any agreement was wishful thinking. Fitzthomas had clearly lost and the de Burghs in the coming months and years began to press home their advantage over him. While skirmishes broke out in the late 1290s, the political climate in Ireland was changing. The royal authorities began to make clear they would no longer tolerate a feud of this kind and began to make moves to resolve it. John de Wogan was appointed just this year our King's representative and he set about restoring order. One of his first acts was to bring both Richard de Burgh and John Fitzthomas overseas to fight for King Edward I in Scotland in 1296. By getting the two out of Ireland, this undoubtedly helped to soothe the situation. However, John de Wogan understood the reality of the situation and that the issue at heart lay in the fact that both de Burgh and Fitzthomas owned lands in Connacht and this needed to be resolved. Ultimately, a peace was cobbled together in 1298 and 1299. However, there could be little doubt over who emerged victorious. Indeed, one source stated that Fitzthomas was punished by this agreement, and in effect he was. In the agreement, both men swore before the justiciar Fitzthomas had to apologise for what he had done to Richard de Burgh and place himself symbolically in the Red Earl's captivity from which he was immediately released. Lee Castle where the Red Earl had been imprisoned, was also given to the de Burgh family, who then returned it. These were symbolic acts of humiliation, but the agreement had very real clauses as well. Crucially, John Fitzthomas had to turn over all lands in Connacht and Ulster to the de Burgh family. In return, the de Burghs handed over lands of similar value in Leinster and Munster to John Fitzthomas. The winner here was clearly the Red Earl and the wider de Burgh family. They were now given free reign over half the Norman colony in their lands in Ulster and Connacht. To cement this truce, John Fitzthomas's eldest son was betrothed to one of Richard de Burgh's daughters. This eldest son, Gerald, however, never made it to the altar, dying as a teenager, and in 1312, his brother, Thomas, a man plucked from a career in the church after his brother's death, was married to the Red Earl's youngest daughter, Joan. This brought a formal end to the feud between the Fitzthomas and de Burgh families. However, it by no means meant peace in Ireland. 
Indeed, the time of disturbance and Fitzthomas's reckless actions had some incredibly long-term consequences in Ireland. As we saw in part one, the Red Earl had spent much of his early years in Ireland trying to control the O'Neill family, who were the major Gaelic power in the western half of Ulster. In 1291, he had enjoyed a certain degree of success. He had installed his own cousin, Brian O'Neill, the child of the Red Earl's relative, Eleanor Denangle, as the reigning king. On countless occasions, the Red Earl had to drive back attempts by Donal O'Neill, a man hostile to the de Burghs, when he attempted to take power. However, in 1295, during the time of disturbance, Donal O'Neill took full advantage of the chaos. With the Red Earl in captivity, he knew this was his chance and he made his move. The Red Earl's cousin, Brian O'Neill, faced Donal in the Battle of Crave. Perhaps steeled by the wider chaos, Donal delivered a crushing blow, not only routing and killing Brian O'Neill, but also many of the Normans of Ulster who had come to his defence. This ended a ten-year-long struggle by Donal O'Neill to take power in Western Ulster, and now that he firmly had his hands on the kingship of the O'Neill family, he would not relinquish it easily. The reality was that the Red Earl now had an implacable enemy, a man who hated him and the Norman colonists firmly in power in Western Ulster. While he could, perhaps, have taken action against Donal, in the decade after the time of disturbance, he was preoccupied with events elsewhere, not least among them, Connacht. As we will see later in the show, to leave Donal O'Neill in power was one of the Red Earl's greatest mistakes. This man, Donal O'Neill, would have his vengeance. Having withstood Fitzthomas's attempt to undermine them in Connacht, the de Burghs emerged even stronger than they had before. In the agreement that ended the feud, Fitzthomas had surrendered all his lands in the west of Ireland to the de Burghs. This left them with a complete free hand over the west of Ireland and in the following ten years they took full advantage. During this process, Richard de Burgh and his first cousin, William Lear de Burgh, transformed the family into what can only be described as a military superpower of medieval Ireland. With no real opposition in Connacht, they could now assert complete control over the most powerful Gaelic-Irish family in the region, the O'Connors. They could install and depose kings of the O'Connors as they saw fit. This, however, left hard fighting ahead of them, much of which was left in the capable, if ruthless, hands of the Red Earl's cousin, William Leah de Burgh. He was a man who had a deep personal grievance with the O'Connor family. They had, after all, killed his father, William Og de Burgh, at the Battle of Ahan Kip in 1270, and he understood very well the dangers of the O'Connors if they rose up against the Normans. In the coming years, there would be no tactic too low for William Leah de Burgh as he sought to totally subdue the O'Connor family. William Leah began his campaigns as early as 1296. That year, the Red Earl had travelled overseas with the Justicier to fight for the king. In his absence, a rival faction of the O'Connors had attempted to depose the Red Earl's ally, A. O'Connor who by now was becoming known as A of the Foreigners, given his dependence on the de Burghs. Connacht was beset by widespread violence as a result of this. A, however, did escape and informed William Leah de Burgh of what was happening. De Burgh now used this to increase his family's control in the West. Along with the Red Earl's brother, Theobald, he immediately marched north with an army to the Monastery of Boyle. 
There, they would spend four days ravaging and raiding the surrounding territory and forcing submission from the Gaelic Irish families of North Connacht. In the aftermath of this, A. O'Connor himself swept into the region and took power again. This brought a certain degree of peace to Connacht and indeed A. O'Connor ruled with the support of the de Burgh family for 10 years, relatively unmolested. This was highly advantageous for the Red Earl, who all of the time was strengthening his family's grip over the West without any opposition. In 1300, they completed a major fortification at Ballymote. However, the close connection between A. O'Connor and the de Burgh family was always going to create tension and in 1306 the wider O'Connor family decided they needed to take action against A who had surrendered so much power to their Norman overlords. That summer A was deposed and a large scale warfare broke out yet again in North Connacht. On this occasion the de Burghs stood aloof and A managed to finally kill his rival but not before his royal palace was burnt. As he walked through the smouldering ashes of his seat of power, A. O'Connor must have known that a day of reckoning was inevitably coming. Even though he had killed his rival, large sections of his own family had turned against him. However, all in Connacht knew that the feud within the O'Connor family was something of a sideshow. When, and it was clearly only a matter of time now, that A. O'Connor was permanently deposed by his own family, the big question was clearly what would the de Burghs do? The moment of truth stepped closer the following year when a key supporter of A. O'Connor was assassinated by the rival faction. The moment of decision was looming ever closer and the day of reckoning finally arrived in 1309. In 1309, A. O'Connor's luck finally ran out when the rival faction of the O'Connors made their decisive move and in a relatively small skirmish in North Connacht they killed A. O'Connor and his leading supporters and claimed the kingship for one of their own. Now, as was standard for the time, there were numerous other claimants and chief among them was the son of A. O'Connor, a 16-year-old boy called Phelim. Following in his father's footsteps, he sent word to William Leah de Burgh asking for aid to install him as king. William, then serving as deputy just this year and no longer in the West, immediately relinquished his office and returned to the West of Ireland to deal with the situation. His response was nothing short of a violent whirlwind. He undoubtedly saw the potential of the situation that was unfolding. If the 16-year-old Phelan became king, the O'Connors would be weak and this young boy would be unable to provide little by way of opposition and would clearly be heavily dependent on the de Burghs. William began raiding north into Connacht which helped Phelan consolidate his position. That year the Red Earl also took control of Roscommon and Rindoon castles, two major fortifications along the Shannon River near the territory of the O'Connors. Their actions were increasingly like that of a constrictor snake slowly circling around an enemy, tightening their grip with every move. However, William Leah de Burgh had not yet defeated the main rival of the young Phelan O'Connor. This man, somewhat confusingly named A. Brefney O'Connor, eluded the de Burghs all through that summer of 1309. However, having failed on the battlefields of Connacht that year, William Leah de Burgh resorted to other methods, certainly less honourable, the following year. In early 1310, A. Brefney O'Connor began extremely violent raids against Phelan and his supporters. Women and children were killed, including the wife of the principal supporter of young Phelan. 
On hearing this, William Leah de Burgh moved up into North Connacht with an army and camped close to where A. Breffney was based. A major battle that would decide the fate of Connacht, perhaps for a generation, now loomed on the horizon. If William Leah won, Phelan would consolidate his position and the de Burgh's stranglehold on the west would undoubtedly increase. However, in this A. Breffney O'Connor, de Burgh faced an astute battle commander who had been manoeuvring for nearly 15 years to take power. As battle seemed inevitable, A. Breffney O'Connor dispatched his brother to attack a Norman castle nearby, hoping this would split the de Burgh army. While this was undoubtedly an intelligent ploy, he was facing one of the most ruthless individuals that the de Burgh family had ever produced in William Leah. He was already two steps ahead, having bribed A. Breffney O'Connor's bodyguards. At a chosen moment of weakness, these bodyguards, under William Leah de Burgh's instruction, turned on the defenceless A. Breffney and cut him down, stabbing him multiple times. Having seen off this would-be king in A. Breffney O'Connor, the de Burghs successfully harried his remaining supporters. This allowed the young Phelan to take power. However, the de Burghs were intent on keeping him on a tight leash. Rather than retreating back to his lands in South Connacht, William Leah de Burgh went right into the heart of O'Connor territory and garrisoned his troops in houses across the region. This was perhaps one of the lowest points for the O'Connors. They were no longer in any way independent and such a humiliating move naturally provoked a response. Phelan O'Connor's supporters and advisers knew they needed to make some sort of gesture to illustrate that this young leader had some independence. They did this by bringing the 16-year-old to Carn Free, where he was inaugurated King of Connacht in accordance with ancient customs. At this ceremony, Phelan was married to the earth in traditions that stretched back deep into prehistory and was then proclaimed King of Connacht. While this was a gesture of independence and an attempt to portray the young Phelan as his own man, there were few who could seriously deny that in all reality, he was dependent on the de Burgh family. By 1310, the de Burghs were undoubtedly at the height of their power. True enough, they could not dislodge the Gaelic-Irish king, Don Loneil and Tyrone, but they had few other rivals. Such was the prestige of the family that in 1310, when a parliament was convened in Kilkenny, records taken at the event placed Richard de Burgh at the top of a list, even before the king's representative a very symbolic act. That year they also finished a major castle building programme to consolidate their power. The ruins of Sligo Castle, which had been given to them by Fitzthomas as part of the agreement to end the feud, were rebuilt, while they also finished a castle that would be called Northburg. Situated on the Inishowen Peninsula, this allowed them to keep a close eye on Donal O'Neill. Meanwhile, no one could question the achievement of William Leah de Burgh who had broken the back of resistance among the O'Connor family, temporarily at least. With this immense power, it was inevitable that the Red Earl would look to a time when he was dead and his family would continue his legacy. This was where his children were all important. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with plush care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. 
Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. In 1281, Richard de Burgh had married Margaret de Guinness, a relative of the royal family. As was customary for the time, the couple were young, with Richard scarcely 21 and Margaret herself no more than a teenager. While the two would have barely known each other prior to their marriage, they began a family almost immediately. A family like theirs literally could never have enough male heirs. Every family feared the fate of the Marshalls, the one-time Lords of Leinster. Even though William Marshall had five sons, each one had died before he could produce an heir himself and the family lands were subsequently broken up. Because of this, married life was not easy on the Red Earl's wife, Margaret de Guinness. In the first four years, and this was before she had even turned 21, she had given birth to four children, most importantly, among them, a boy who was going to be the family heir, Walter. She had a second son, John, in 1286, and then in the coming years, she had five more children, two boys, Thomas and Edmund, and three girls, Joan, Catherine and Matilda. In total, Richard and Margaret had ten children who survived infancy. While her last child, a daughter named Joan, was born around 1300, the fact that Margaret had given birth to ten children in twenty years and presumably, as was common for the age, suffered miscarriages as well, her short life exacted a great toll on her body. When she died in 1304, aged only in her late thirties, she had spent over half her adult life pregnant or recovering from birth. That year of 1304, when Margaret died, proved a very difficult one for the de Burgh family. The Red Earl's heir, his 19-year-old son Walter de Burgh, also died. Now this left his second son John as the new heir and undoubtedly reminded many of the need for large families in a time of high mortality rates. For the surviving de Burgh children, their future lives were inextricably tied into the family fortunes. Given the successes enjoyed by the de Burgh family by the early 14th century, the Red Earl secured marriages to families of really high rank but these were always chosen with political and military alliances in mind. For example, John, the family heir, married the sister of the Earl of Hereford. As we've already seen, his sister Joan de Burgh married John Fitzthomas's son and heir, Thomas, to end the feud between the two families. Tensions at that wedding that was held in 1312 undoubtedly must have run high, as the old rivals, the Red Earl and John Fitzthomas, were presumably in attendance. While Richard de Burgh appeared to have secured the future of his family by the time this marriage took place in 1312, something of a disaster struck the following year. While the worst scenario for a family like the de Burghs was to have no male heir, the next worst situation was to be left with an heir who was a very young child. In 1313, the Red Earl's second heir and son, John de Burgh, also predeceased him. However, before he died, John's wife had already given birth to a son called William, a child of one. 
and despite his young age, medieval law now stipulated that this baby was the Red Earl's heir. However, Richard was already past 50 in a world where most died before their 40th birthday and the family future was again uncertain to say the least. There was simply nothing that could be done save to hope that the Red Earl lived long enough for this child to grow into an adult. Indeed, the death of his son John de Berg in 1313 proved to be something of a turning point, symbolically at least, because things began to go downhill from this point on and two years later his relations with his family imploded in the most dramatic style possible. The origins of this lay in the marriage of his daughter Elizabeth, who had been wed to the Scottish noble Robert Bruce in 1302. Indeed, this chapter was the most important of the Red Earl's long life, and would develop into a conflict that would make the feud with John Fitzthomas seem minor. The origins of this lay in Scotland, and it is there we need to go next, because the history of Scotland in the late 13th century is an essential part of Irish history as well, and indeed, it is something that many of you may know more about than you realise. The lands of the de Burgh family in Ulster look directly across at the west coast of Scotland. Indeed, the most important settlement in medieval Ulster, Carrickfergus, lies only 20 miles from Galloway in southern Scotland. This led to constant trade and contact. Ulster was closer to Scotland than it was to London, or for that matter Dublin. Relations in the region went even further than just trade though. Some of the major Norman families in Ulster, such as the Logans and the Bissets, had originally been Norman families in the lowlands of Scotland. With such close ties, unsurprisingly, events in Scotland frequently had ramifications in Ulster. In 1286, these ramifications dramatically increased as the Norman lords of Ulster and their king, Edward I, became increasingly embroiled in a lethal struggle over the Scottish throne. In 1286, the old king of Scotland, a man called Alexander III, died leaving a major political crisis in his wake. His only child was a daughter, who had married the King of Norway, so most Scottish nobles were opposed to her taking the throne. A compromise was reached that her child, the one-year-old Margaret, known as the Maid of Norway, was chosen as the future monarch. This, however, led to huge uncertainty. Given infant mortality was disturbingly common in the Middle Ages, it was certainly possible that this child would never reach adulthood. Indeed, within weeks, Rivals of hers in the Balliol family laid claim to the throne, but they faced opposition from another Norman family, the Bruces. This situation became even more complex when the Maid of Norway did in fact die long before adulthood in 1290. There was no clear successor, leaving numerous contenders, the most prominent of whom were those two families that I mentioned, the Bruces and the Balliols. With no easy resolution, the situation rumbled on, and King Edward I in England increasingly sought to extend his influence in the region. This culminated when he launched an outright invasion in 1296. Large numbers of Irish nobles, including the Red Earl and John Fitzthomas, boarded ships to support their king. King Edward also received support from some Scottish nobles, including Robert Bruce, the Earl of Carrick, and James Stuart. Of the Irish nobles, the Red Earl was perhaps the most concerned about the outcome of any war in Scotland as it would undoubtedly impact Ulster, so he increasingly sought to forge alliances with prominent Scottish nobles. This began in 1296, when he married his sister Agadia to the Scots noble James Stuart. In 1302, he married his daughter Elizabeth to Robert Bruce, one of the leading Scots supporters of Edward I. Slowly but surely, the Red Earl was extending his influence into Scotland. 
These Scots wars, while politically advantageous, were also highly profitable for the de Burgh family. King Edward I was heavily reliant on the de Burgh war machine during this conflict in Scotland. While the royal authorities couldn't always afford the cost of bringing the family and their allies to Scotland, in 1303 they shelled out vast amounts of money. In the campaigns that year the Red Earl brought 3,000 men from Ireland. In repayment for this he had an astronomical debt of £11,600 owed to the Irish Exchequer wiped. This was around two years of Exchequer returns for the entire island of Ireland at the time. However, this lucrative extension of de Burgh power and influence northwestward into southern Scotland came to an abrupt halt in 1306. When it emerged that the Red Earl's Scottish son-in-law, Robert Bruce, had been scheming behind Edward I's back, he fled the English court. Events now moved quickly. Bruce, with nothing to lose, made his own play for power in Scotland. He killed his great rival, John Common, in an notorious incident in a church, before being crowned King of Scotland himself. For the Red Earl, this was disastrous. His own son-in-law, in effect, had declared war on his King Edward I, making Bruce public enemy number one. Their outrage at their son-in-law's actions no doubt turned to concern for the fate of their daughter, who was Bruce's wife and now the Queen of Scotland. While Bruce had taken the throne, it was clear he was going to struggle to keep it. He was quickly defeated at the Battle of Mevan, after which he fled into exile. Elizabeth de Burgh, the Red Earl's daughter, reputedly said of her fading hopes of becoming Scottish Queen, It seems to me we are but a summer king and queen, whom children crowned in their sport. Indeed, in the following year of 1307, Elizabeth de Burgh was taken captive when Edward I marched north into Scotland. She would spend the next seven years in various castles in England. For the Red Earl, the once lucrative wars in Scotland had now turned bitter and to make matters worse, rumours began to circulate that he was lending aid to Robert Bruce. While this rumour followed him for the rest of his life, there's no evidence he had any improper dealings with his rebellious son-in-law. However, the same could not be said for some of his Ulster vassals. Many of the Ulster Normans had strong connections to the Bruces and at least one appears to have continued to aid the fugitive King of Scotland. While Bruce was on the run from Edward I in 1306 to 1307, he appears to have sought sanctuary on Rattlin Island off the coast of Antrim. This was ruled by the Bissett family who had ancestral links to Scotland and it's unlikely that Bruce could have spent a winter there without their knowledge. From there, Bruce began to develop a hostile approach towards the Normans of Ireland, men like his father-in-law, the Red Earl, who he had fought alongside only a few years earlier. He began to encourage the Gaelic-Irish to rise up against his former allies. In one letter addressed to Gaelic-Irish kings, he encouraged them to revolt and claim for Ireland, in his words, her ancient freedoms. Indeed, these links with the Gaelic-Irish appear to have developed beyond words. When Bruce returned to Scotland in 1307, the Lanarkost Chronicle claimed an Irish princess helped him. This was the beginning of a relationship that would have huge consequences in Ireland. While the Bruce's cause may have seemed doomed in 1306, when he took refuge on Rathlin Island, he began to enjoy greater successes in the following years. In 1307, King Edward I, referred to by many as Malleus Scotorum, or Hammer of the Scots, died. His son, Edward II, replaced him. However, the 23-year-old was a pale shadow of his father. Edward II was perhaps the weakest king of England in a century. 
His reign witnessed a remarkable reversal in fortunes for the Bruces, who slowly began to take back large portions of Scotland. Despite all these developments, Richard de Burgh decided he would keep his distance from Scotland, which had once proved so lucrative. Indeed, he never returned to Scotland to fight once his son-in-law Robert Bruce took power. Perhaps it was the discomforting prospect of fighting his own son-in-law in battle, or, more likely, he was worried how his vassals might react given that some of them at least had divided loyalties. However, while he decided to remain aloof from the conflict, this didn't give him the peace he may have sought. While he didn't travel to Scotland, in 1315 the war came to him. By the summer of 1314, Scotland was becoming the main priority for the King of England, Edward II. Robert Bruce, having taken back much of the country, was now besieging the English garrison in Stirling Castle. Edward II resolved he would march north himself and at the head of a great host he set out for Stirling. However, yet again the Red Earl of Ulster would not participate and refused to get involved in a war against his son-in-law. Nevertheless, Edward's campaign had a huge impact in Ulster. It's almost impossible to underestimate this impact. As he marched north with his great army and neared Stirling Castle, Robert the Bruce blocked the King of England's path. What followed was one of the most famous battles in medieval history, the Battle of Bannockburn. The Scots routed the English with Edward II himself lucky to avoid capture. While this event had huge implications for Scotland, the ripples led to nothing short of a tidal wave in Ireland. Initially, there was some good news for the de Burghs. The Red Earl's daughter Elizabeth, now Queen of Scotland, who had spent seven years in captivity, was exchanged for prisoners the Scots took at Bannockburn. However, this was pretty much the only good news. The Battle of Bannockburn was in terms of the history of both Britain and Ireland in a word monumental. This was largely due to the decisions taken by Robert the Bruce in the aftermath of his great victory. For the first time in their war with England that had started in 1296, the Scots found themselves in a position to go on the offensive. This was easier said than done. An invasion of England was fraught with danger. Edward II could withdraw deep into England, leaving Robert the Bruce invading through hostile territory pockmarked with fortified towns, surviving on tremendously long supply lines. To land a decisive blow, he would need to take London, which lay nearly 300 miles south of the Scottish border. This was almost impossible. However, in the winter of 1314 to 1315, Bruce began to develop an entirely different strategy. The Norman colony in Ireland had long been the chief supply base for the kings of England in their war in Scotland. If this could be destroyed or heavily damaged, the English ability to wage war would be massively undermined. Furthermore, if the Scots invaded Ireland, the King of England would be too distracted to pay much attention to Scotland. There was also advantages to launching an attack in Ireland rather than England. As we have seen, Robert the Bruce was already forging alliances with Gaelic kings, and by 1315, the powerful O'Neills and their king Donal O'Neill were willing to support a Scots invasion of the Norman colony. However, if Robert the Bruce was going to do this, he had no way around directly attacking his father-in-law, the Red Earl. The Scots would need to invade his lands in Ulster before they could hope to march south into the rest of Ireland. This left heavy fighting ahead. Bruce knew only too well the huge forces the de Burghs could call on in battle. 
Nevertheless, in early 1315, Bruce decided that this was the course of action he would choose, and the preparations were set in train. In April and May, thousands of men were gathered in Ayrshire, and the strategy was laid out. Robert the Bruce himself could not leave Scotland, so the command was given to his brother, Edward Bruce, while some of Scotland's most powerful nobles were going to travel with him. The Scots were also in close contact with the O'Neills of Western Ulster, who led by Don O'Neill, with its implacable hatred of the Normans, was going to go to great lengths to support the Bruce invasion. Remarkably, the plan was kept quiet and no preparations were made for defence in Ireland. Perhaps the first the Normans knew that something was afoot may have been in May 1315 when the sea around Ulster fell quiet. Undoubtedly, the Scots would have been press-ganging all available ships to transfer the large army across to Ireland. Finally, on May the 26th, 1315, the worst nightmare of Richard de Burgh, the Red Earl of Ulster, materialised. On the horizon off the coast of Ulster, the greatest fleet Ireland had ever seen appeared. Hundreds of ships carrying 6,000 soldiers, veterans of Bannockburn, were about to land close to Carrickfergus and invade his lands. The de Burgh war machine was about to be tested as it never had before. Indeed, while they may have been at the height of their power in May 1315, within four months their very survival would be in question. To find out what happens, tune in to the next episode. Until next time, Sloan. And don't forget to get your copy of 1348 A Medieval Apocalypse at irishhistorypodcast.ie. are on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.